Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Jana Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today I'm speaking with Greg Smoke, Associate Professor of History and Director of the American West Center. The center was founded in 1964 with the mission of researching the history and culture of the American West. Can you elaborate on the mission of the American West Center? Yeah, I, the mission of the center, you know, I always like to say is threefold. You said researching the history and culture of the American West. I would also add to that um, doing public programming um, that involves Western issues. And also, we're a teaching institution. We don't offer classes of our own, but we we look to instruction as a big part of our mission. Over the years, several hundred graduate students have passed through the American West Center, and they've gotten experience and training doing hands-on applied humanities and I'm happy to say I was one of those students. So you've been with the American West Center for quite a while then. I or involved in some sort yes. of capacity. I started at the center in, I came to the University of Utah in 1987 to begin a PhD program in history. And I started working at the center in June of 1988. So 31 years ago plus. Um, I didn't always stay around Utah. I taught for a year at the University of Minnesota. I spent almost a decade at Colorado State University. Um, but I came back to the U in 2010, and in part because of really the attraction of working at this place again. And then in 2012, I took over as director. So yeah, about three decades of experience. Wow. Can you give some examples, some specific examples of the research and projects that have been done with the center in the past? Well, the center has done a wide range of things, and a lot of that has to do with who is the director at the time. Over the years, the center's been directed by historians, political scientists, anthropologists. Um, Two factors, I think, are core to what we have done. First of all, working with American Indian peoples. Um, That has been kind of a constant in the history of the American West Center, and that dates back to the late 1960s and the Doris Duke American Indian Oral History Project And subsequent to that project, um, the center has done a great deal of work um, with tribes in producing histories for tribes, as well as curricular materials. And then um, that that led up to the American Indian Digital Archive and the Utah American Indian Curriculum Project about 10 years ago. And then we've also done a lot of treaty rights work with tribes. producing expert witness reports for litigation, et cetera. And that's really what I started out doing um, 30 years ago, working with Shoshone-Bannock tribes at Fort Hall, Idaho, and many other tribes over the years. Um, The other constant in our research has been oral history as a methodology. Um, We're not narrowly an oral history center, but oral history has been um, essential to what we have done and what we still do. Um, We do some dedicated oral history projects like the Duke American Indian Oral History Project, or we've done one recently called Saline Stories about Great Salt Lake. We've done a number of veterans oral history projects. But then we've also used oral histories in a lot of the other work that we do. Tribal histories and expert witness reports have relied heavily on um, oral histories, the testimony of Native people, of their recollections. Um, We've also, in recent years, moved into doing a lot of work for um, land management agencies, the National Park Service, BLM, et cetera. And we just completed two projects, for instance, 
with Pipe Spring National Monument, which is an extreme northern Arizona, a little tiny monument, but with a real rich history. Um, I personally did a project for Pipe Spring with, in conjunction with the Navajo Nation and their historic preservation department, recording oral histories and family stories dating back to the 1860s and 1870s. Um, we also did a, for one of a better way to put it, a historic graffiti study for Pipe Spring, and that was trying to take um, the historic inscriptions, the essentially the graffiti that was carved in the wall by cowboys and ranchers and by CCC workers in the 1930s, and trying to put those inscriptions with real people and create a, a biographical dictionary in a sense of the people of, of Pipe Spring. Um, so those are two of the most recent things that we've done. So you talk a lot about oral histories. So what is the, what is, why the focus on oral histories rather than written? Oral history is, is an important methodology because it allows people whose words and whose stories might have been left out of the historical record to be brought into history. Um, oral history, you, you can collect the testimonies, the life experiences of Native people, as well as their um, oral traditions, and you can use those in writing history. Native people have always been at a disadvantage when it comes to history because they have not left written records behind until the 20th century. There are forms of Native language and native writing before the 20th century. But in large part, historians have relied on the documents produced by Euro-Americans, by government officials, um, by missionaries, and so on. But we do have these native stories that have survived, and they bring a, they at least bring partially the native perspective to these issues. Beyond native peoples, oral histories do the same thing for um other groups in our society who have been marginalized and have been left out, who might not leave written records behind. I mean, if you base the histories you write only on government documents or only on the papers and diaries of the wealthy who have left their records to a university archive or to a state historical society or whatever, you've got a very narrow slice of what is out there. And oral history is not imperfect. I mean, memories change, and we, we take that into account, but sometimes that's the issue. That's kind of what we are looking at um, in terms of the Navajo project that is completed. It really is, it really was just as important to consider the ways in which the stories of that period and Navajo contacts and conflicts with the Mormon settlers in northern Arizona played out as much as it was, say, correcting the historical record, although you can do some of that, right? So oral history can serve a lot of different purposes. And are these projects made public or some, at least some of them made public? That depends on who, you know, who is really behind the projects. Our tribal work in terms of treaty rights work is generally owned by the tribes that contracted for that. And any access to those materials is at the discretion of the tribes. We cannot grant that. All of the National Park Service work, BLM work, Forest Service work we do, um, a lot of the curricular materials, this is all public domain, and it's all easily accessible. When you work for any of the federal bureaucracies, it must be um, accessible. Some of it has been published, though, also. For instance, um, 
we've done histories with a number of tribes, San Ana Pueblo, Tohono O'odham, that were done for the tribes, but then were subsequently published by the University of Utah and other presses. So that stuff is out there and readily available. A lot of the gray literature, and gray literature is a term that refers to the type of projects that are not necessarily published as books or in, in journal articles, but published for government entities like the Park Service, is is more and more widely available. You know, A couple of decades ago, it could be fairly difficult to come up with copies of this stuff because it might be on deposit in one or two research libraries around the country. But now, because things are available digitally, it's out there. Um, the I did a report for Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument Environmental History, which I'm revising to publish as a book. But that's been online and available, you know, through the park um, for the last year or so. How does the center involve undergraduate and graduate students, or how do students get involved with the American West Center? Well, you know, undergrads, we'd love to see more undergrads. I think keeping an eye on our website and contacting us directly if you do have an interest in that. Most of the people that work here today are graduate students um, from the depart- from all the departments in the College of Humanities over the years, at least. Uh, we do offer a direct way for graduate students to be supported um, in their research, and that's the Floyd O'Neill Scholarship. And Floyd, who passed away last year in April, in April 2018, at the age of 90, was truly a, you know, a foundational figure of this center. He's around it for 50 years. And um, he and his wife, Shauna, had endowed a, f- a fellowship, and that is offered to graduate students every year. And that announcement goes out in the spring, and it supports them with um, research funds for travel, for research expenses on topics that involve the American West. So that's one direct way graduate students can be involved, but also simply just keeping an eye on the projects that we do and just contacting us directly. We can see if the students are interested in working, um, you know, on some of the things we have on the horizon. Great. And is there anything else you think people students, community members should know about the American West Center? Is there anything else you want to add? Well, I I talk about some of our our current projects and a big initiative we're launching um, this year. Um, We still have a number of contract projects going on. We're doing an administrative history of Zion National Park. We're working with the Nevada Indian Commission on completing a National Historic Landmark nomination for the Stewart Indian School campus in Carson City, Nevada. We've got a couple of land use um, studies underway with the BLM in St. George. But the I think the most exciting new thing is a Native Peoples Initiative that we're launching this year. And specifically, um, we're starting to work on a major digital project, which we're calling Native Places. And it is a, it's a sense a decolonial atlas of Utah and the Intermountain West. It's going to be a layered interactive map that users can... Um, access to look for native place names. Essentially, we're going to be replacing the official place names on USGS maps with tribal names for the different um, peoples um, of Utah. And that's going to be a beginning point for our, our larger shift back towards, I think, getting back to our roots and working again with um, Utah's native peoples. Sounds very busy. It how is. how many graduate students do you have working for you right now? We have five here right now. We it has fluctuated over the years. So some years we have three or four. 
And the busiest years, we've had eight or nine people. Um, but I would say four to five is probably pretty average. And I think it's a great opportunity because not only do you, we, we pay a competitive stipend with departments in terms of you know competing with a te- uh, teaching assistantship, um, we also offer um, when, when they're eligible um, tuition benefit. Um, but you also get, I think, an unparalleled chance to do this type of hands-on applied humanities work. And it's not that common in, the, in American universities to have a center like this where students can get that kind of opportunity. That was Greg Smoke from the American West Center. Visit awc.utah.edu for more information. <laughs>